America has spent a lot of the past couple years reconsidering things. Among them is how we treated Britney Spears in 2007 and 2008. Pretty much everyone agrees it was not great. The New York Times has extensively reported on how her conservatorship trapped Britney in a dystopian, controlling little world. That's only deepened our retrospective national queasiness. We were, as a society, pretty callous towards her. Here's a 2007 CNN News report with anchors T.J. Holmes and Betty Wynn. We will turn now to a story that is burning up the internet. It's burning up the water cooler talk. It's just burning this morning. Yes. Britney Spears. She's bald. Uh, We've got this photo now from the x17online.com. And it appears to show the pop star shaving her own head. This is the same CNN that made its bones covering the first Gulf War. And okay, the OJ trial too. In 2007, everyone was obsessed with following what was going on in Britney Spears' life. It was a microeconomy unto itself that mainstream TV news wanted in on. The CNN anchors proceed to interview an Us Weekly editor named Bradley Jacobs. Bradley, did she say why? I mean, did she yes. offer any information? They, they asked why she wanted to shave her head, and she said, I don't want anyone touching me. I'm tired of everybody touching me. The interview goes from there, speculating on Britney's short stint in rehab, detailing the new tattoo she got. The tone is, if not jokey, then at the very least, prurient. It's not that long ago, but 2007 had some very different cultural norms. We didn't talk about mental health in the same way we do now. We had less of a filter on our mean. On the old internet, headlines like, Britney Spears wins right to endanger kids one night per week, weren't beyond the pale. That one's from Gawker Media, by the way. It almost, Bradley, sounds like a cry for help. Um, We'll see how it all turns out. uh, But um, the news today, Britney Spears is bald. A new look for uh, the pop star. Things, as we know did not turn out well. Here's Spears 14 years later, speaking before a California judge in June 2021 during a hearing on the status of her conservatorship. I'm not willing to go to Westlake and be embarrassed by all these paparazzi, these scummy paparazzi laughing at my faces while I'm crying, coming out and taking my pictures. A hothouse media environment exacerbated Britney Spears' problems. The paparazzi get a lion's share of the blame for that. After all, they were the guys who followed her around constantly. That's how CNN got all the photos and B-roll to play during their interview. What you might not realize is that paparazzi aren't nearly as prevalent today as they were back in the 2000s in Hollywood. And the industry wasn't so frenzied prior to that period either. In fact, Britney Spears experienced the lowest point of her life at the absolute peak of a paparazzi wave. A lot of that is because, as you heard last episode, Magazines like Us Weekly and People were at the height of their powers, helping drive celebrity stories so juicy that CNN and Network News started covering them, too. Paparazzi weren't and aren't solo operators. They're the workmen, the guys shoveling coal into the engines that fuel the celebrity industrial complex. And yes, they're mostly men doing this. They, more than anyone else in the tabloid industry, sit at the crossroads of discomfort and entertainment. Their livelihood exists in a moral gray space. 
Are they exploiters or chroniclers? Fans or fiends? Who exactly are all these people taking the pictures? How did the paparazzi craze of 2007 get so crazy? And how should we, a celebrity-devouring public, think about the people who take these pictures we obviously like looking at? From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. We have Federico Fellini, the Italian filmmaker, to thank for the word paparazzi. In La Dolce Vita, his classic 1960 movie, Marcello Mastriani plays a celebrity journalist who has some fun in Rome and is often accompanied on his adventures around town by a photographer known as Paparazzo. Paparazzo is onomatopoetic. Fellini said it connoted a buzzing and hovering sound. It might have roots in the Sicilian word for a large mosquito, papatacheo, which might tell you that even back in 1960, people did not think well of paparazzi. Back then, they were thought of as a European scourge. A Time magazine article described them as more bully boys than news photographers. They lounge beneath lampposts, lips leaking cigarettes, cameras drawn like automatics. It was this guy, Ron Galella, who really brought the profession to the attention of the American public. On October 7th, 1971, I got my greatest picture, windblown Jackie, my Mona Lisa. Galella gained notoriety in the 1960s, 70s, and beyond for his photographs of celebrities. He worked for decades, following all manner of people, from the Duke and Duchess of Windsor to Madonna. But his obsession was Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, 
And in the clip you just heard from Galola's YouTube channel, he's describing how he got his most famous photograph of her. You might know it. It's a picture of the former first lady dressed casually in jeans and a ribbed long sleeve shirt, her hair blowing in her face as she looks directly into the camera. It's probably glued dead center to Ralph Lauren's American chic vision board. Galella had been shooting a model in Central Park, spotted Jackie coming out of her apartment, and pursued her on foot and in a taxi to get his shot. The driver of the taxi was interested in Jackie, and he blew his horn. I didn't tell him to blow the horn. This was luck. And Jackie turned at the corner of 90th spontaneously after hearing the honk of the horn. And she didn't recognize me because I had the camera to my face. And I got the shot of the Mona Lisa shot, the smile in her eyes and lips. If she had recognized Galella, Jackie would have been none too pleased. He was a hellacious pest to her and her two children. In fact, a day after windblown Jackie was taken, she requested a restraining order against Galella. It was granted, and in court testimony, Galella admitted to using disguises and once hiding in a restaurant coat rack to get his shots of her. Their legal battles would drag on for years. Galella pretty clearly crossed all kinds of boundaries, ethical and otherwise. He was notoriously difficult. Marlon Brando punched Galella and knocked out five of his teeth one time. What's tricky, though, is that Galella is a pretty great photographer. Those images he took of Jackie only helped cement her glamorous image. She, like so many other celebrities Galella photographed, benefited in a not insignificant way from the attention of his lens. In fact, Windblown Jackie is owned by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, along with four other Galella prints. His photos are sold by galleries. They are officially art now, not tabloid trash. His beautiful photos and at-all-cost tactics made him the godfather of American paparazzi photography. This next guy you're going to meet actually owes his start in the business to Galella. My name is Randy Bauer. What I'm known for and how I, how I started out in the photography business is uh, shooting celebrities, and specifically paparazzi style. Spontaneous, candid, uh, that type of photography. Randy would go on to own Bauer Griffin, one of the bigger paparazzi agencies in Hollywood during the 2000s heyday. But he began as a street photographer, and a precocious one at that. I actually went out in New York on my own at about 16 years old to try to shoot candid pictures of celebrities. It was the mid-1980s, and Randy was taking pictures of people like Tony Danza and Sylvester Stallone, standing outside places like Le Cirque, 30 Rock, and the Carlisle Hotel for hours just to get a shot. One day, he met Galella, who'd fallen asleep in his car while waiting for Elizabeth Taylor outside a fancy New York hotel. So I said, oh, this is my opportunity. So I ran over and I knocked on the window and I said, hey, they just left. You're, you missed the shot and they were getting into their limo. The two men followed her to the next location and Galella, thankful for the heads up, told Randy he might consider hiring him. Randy worked for Galella for the next four years. But in the early 1990s, a change of pace seemed like a good idea. Hollywood beckoned. It wasn't the absolute paparazzi mania that the 2000s would see, 
but it was still a very good time to be a celebrity photographer in California. Not only did the tabloids like Star and the National Enquirer want photos, so did celebrity-driven TV shows like Old Standby Entertainment Tonight and newcomers like Inside Edition, Hard Copy, A Current Affair, and E. My name is Peter Bryant. I was a, uh, what you say, a paparazzi photographer for 26 years, 1980-2005. Peter is part of the old-school Hollywood paparazzi set. He started off as a regular schmegular photojournalist. He went to journalism school and worked the crime beat for the L.A. Times. But he discovered by happenstance that the tabloids paid much better money than newspapers. The National Enquirer bought a picture he took of John Ritter and Lou Ferrigno for 10 times what Peter was paid for a day's work by the Los Angeles Times. Soon, he was on assignment for the tabloid, following around Bo Derek, Cher, Don Johnson, and Melanie Griffith. He made amazing money and often worked with his wife, Francine. What's the most you ever sold a, pic- a set of pictures for? Francine, what was the most? The, 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 the most... Money I made on one image. Oh my God, that would be. um... Francine and Peter have a very cute dynamic. It's charmingly codependent. They spent years traveling the world together, taking pictures and camping out in vans. Peter took the photos, and Francine sometimes wrote stories and yelled at magazine editors to pay Peter what he was worth. She told me this is because she's Italian. Today, they live in California and make money flipping houses. They are, by their own description, aging hippies. They're basically living the boomer dream. By the way, the most they ever made on photos? The Elizabeth Taylor wedding in Morocco. We did have exclusivity for a little bit of time there and probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars worldwide. Peter means her 1991 honeymoon here, Her actual wedding was at Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Things only got more lucrative as the 1990s progressed. The mania surrounding a post-divorce Princess Diana was some indication of what was to await early 2000s starlets. Tactics got more aggressive. Like when the photographer Phil Ramey rented a submarine to sneak up on Diana sunbathing on a remote beach. As we all know, there were serious consequences— Paparazzi played a pretty direct role in Diana's death, chasing her car and helping lead to a high-speed wreck. But even that tragedy didn't dampen the paparazzi business or prompt any real examination of its tactics. The industry was bigger than it had ever been, but it was about to get supercharged, with higher photo bounties and more photographers than ever before. That change would come in the first years of the new century. Us Weekly's insatiable appetite for photos during those years following its 2002 Bonnie Fuller relaunch helped drive the paparazzi frenzy. My name is Peter Grossman. I was the news photo editor at Us Weekly. Peter was in charge of Us Weekly's relationship with the paparazzi during those gold rush years of the early 2000s. He drank with them at the Spotted Pig in New York, got their source tips on celebs, and bid lots and lots of money on their celebrity photo packages. He estimates that during that silly season period of the tabloid war between us and people, he was spending six figures per issue on photos. 
When Peter started at the magazine, paparazzi weren't necessarily viewed as valued associates by the Manolo Blahnik Shad magazine editors working out of the New York City offices. Traditionally, it had been sort of an adversarial relationship between magazines like us or, uh, you know, even to, at some, to some extent, the tabloids. Peter is drawing a distinction here between Us Weekly and, say, the National Enquirer, which was seen as more downmarket and tawdry. Who worked very closely, of course, with the paparazzi, but, but you know, there was that vendor-client uh, relationship of like, oh, they're trying to stiff us and, you know, that price is too high. Peter started putting more and more photographers on assignment for the magazine rather than making them work on the spec. That meant freelancers wouldn't have to pay up front for their own travel fees. Paparazzi, he said, were often miles ahead of even the magazine's best reporters as far as knowing what was going on in the entertainment world. Their information was crucial, but they needed encouragement, just like any writer on staff. These guys sometimes are going crazy on the ground and need a little bit of talking to. And it can be anything from just like calming someone down to hearing them out to suggesting, okay, when should you land the helicopter and get fuel because I'm working out the timelines here for you. Um, it could be anything on those. So on you're that coordinating list. helicopters? Well, you know, you only have so much fuel. Try, you know, leave it to Jennifer Lopez to get married to Mark Anthony right when Ronald Reagan died. You know, and all the helicopters in LA are being used by news outlets to hover over Ronald Reagan's house, and there's one guy left that gets a helicopter uh, to, in time for this wedding that's happening, and he's calling me saying, What am I supposed to do? I have to get fuel at one point. And we're like, Well, we think it's going to happen here. So. I'm researching how long you, okay, three hours, you could be there. All right, land now, fuel up, then go back up. You won't miss anything. And, you know, that's an important part of the jobs. Making sure a helicopter doesn't crash? Yeah. That has nothing. This is maybe a good place to mention that being a paparazzo is a batshit crazy job that requires people to have some kind of chip missing in order to do it. For instance, this was not the only time that a dicey situation in a helicopter was mentioned to me. You need a certain fearlessness, and probably a serious case of I-don't-give-a-shit-itis. You are not cowed by famous people or awkward situations. You think nothing of hovering over a stranger's wedding. You probably have a, let's call it, fluid sense of ethics. I really wanted to talk to Phil Ramey, the guy with the submarine, but he seemed to want some kind of compensation in return for the interview. This, despite the fact that, as far as I can tell, he's living a pretty nice life out in the beach in Malibu. Old habits die hard. Anyhow, if you're a paparazzo, your understanding of journalistic mores is probably quite different than what they teach you at J school or in a newspaper bullpen. Take Jill Ishkanian. Remember her from last episode? I've had things thrown at me in a car while I was driving because I was on a chase with somebody else, you know, um, they don't care that you're a woman, you know, they'll, they'll go head to head with you. They'll throw things, they'll write things online, whatever. And I, great. I'll do the same thing back. So get ready. Jill's time as an Us Weekly reporter and West Coast editor actually ended in spectacular fashion. She left to start her own paparazzi agency. Then, Us Weekly staff accused her of hacking into their email to get tips, and the FBI raided Jill's home and agency. She was never arrested or charged, but she did end up suing the magazine's owners and West Coast bureau chief for $55 million. 
an appellate court ultimately dismissed all of Jill's claims. Mostly what came from all that is Jill's photo agency went out of business, and she started working on her own as a PAP. She generated some more press when she called the cops on Heather Locklear for driving erratically, then photographed the police encounter and made $27,000 off the photos. She's still working, a lot of times for the Daily Mail. Jill calls herself the tabloid terminator. You can't kill her off. You might also call her a piece of work. I developed what, you know, the phone sex voice, and I could get people to do anything. I could get women, men, whatever. And I remember, you know, I'd be on the phone with guys, and they'd say, oh, they go, you must be, you got, I don't know what you look like, but your voice is so sexy. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm real hot. And now tell me about blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just so easy. Jill is the kind of person who survives in the paparazzi business. Being a paparazzo isn't all crazy action, though. In fact, a lot of the work is pure boredom. Just sitting in cars, really having to go to the bathroom, and waiting for someone to come out so you can get your shot. Randy Bauer told me that in the aftermath of the O.J. Simpson murder trial, he was assigned to watch the grave of Simpson's murdered ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. Editors wanted a photo of O.J. visiting the grave. So Randy hung out at the cemetery all day, every day, for 14 to 16 hours. Nothing. And then one day, after a month of going to the cemetery, boom, O.J. A sensational story in one simple picture. A lot of Americans associate the word paparazzi with men swarming and shouting at a star. But that style of paparazzi photography only became really popular in the U.S. in the mid-2000s. And a lot of the old guards scorned it. Before that, it had always been a game of hiding away. Peter Grossman likened it to wildlife photography, capturing the celebrity in their natural state without their knowing. Peter Brandt actually had a special spy van to keep himself hidden. Because it was really funky, but it had a toilet, shower, stereo TV, everything. It was really dead, but but it was a small van, so it didn't really stick out that much. And a special sliding window, not rolled down, but just slide enough where the lens could stick out. Peter also used disguises to sneak onto movie sets. Shit, man. I mean, the, the, the security on movies are incredible. It's not easy to get in, not easy to stay in, and not easy not to get caught. I mean, it's really hard. So I, I was a grip. I was a producer man dressed to the hilt with Armani clothes on the set. No, and on the cell phone, you don't bother me. I don't have to wear a credential. I'm a big wig. One time, Peter dressed in camo and hid in the tall grass of Canada, trying to get a shot of Brad Pitt on the set of The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. No one spotted him until Brad himself rode out on a horse and sniped Peter out. Peter managed to hide the camera's memory card in his crotch and made some good money on the pictures. Peter has been detained by the police at least 10 times by his count, including one stint at Disneyland jail when he and a bunch of other photographers tried to hide out overnight so they could get photos of Elizabeth Taylor's birthday party. We're all taken to Disneyland jail. And there's about 80 photographers all sitting on benches. Fuck it, Peter, you lasted that long? I mean, it was like one of the last ones to get caught. And, and, and we're kind of like laughing because what are they going to do with us? 
Well, they threw us in jail. The Anaheim police came to pick us up in a batty wagon and took us all to, to get processed for, for trespassing. The man has lived a life, and it made him a lot of money. I think 2005 or four, I made $300,000. I reported 300000 Randy Bauer first took notice of the tabloid war between Us Weekly and People because he was also making a ton of money. By then, Randy and his partner, Frank Griffin, a former rock and roll photographer, had formed their photo agency, Bauer Griffin. Photo agencies, as their most basic function, do the work for a photographer of brokering the sale of a photograph to an outlet. Then we started to realize, wow, there's something brewing. They are really emphatic about not missing a set of pictures. And, you know, we were happy with that because obviously then that gives us leverage. It's supply and demand at the end of the day. So if we have the supply, which is very minimal at that point, um, and the demand is huge, then there's your recipe for success. It was a financial silly season with the largesse of print magazines on display. A paparazzi gold rush. Peter Grossman of Us Weekly said that even photos for the stars, they're just like us section, a picture chronicle of celebs doing chores and normal everyday stuff, were going for tens of thousands of dollars. Every little just like us photo ended up being a bidding war um, over because people didn't, wouldn't want Us Weekly to even have a good Just Like Us section. Like, meaningless photos. A photo of Justin Timberlake shooting hoops in the back lot behind, like, taking a break from shooting his video goes for $15,000. The competition over pictures was great both for independent photographers like Peter Brandt and for the agencies who had a stable of photographers. Typically, the industry standard is around a 60-40 split between the photographer and the agency. Of course, I wanted to know the most Randy ever made off a picture. We've sold sets for over a million dollars. What sets? Well, there's a couple that we had the, uh, a wedding we did, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas. There were quite a few that were three, 300, 400,000. You know, we had um, first pictures of Reese Witherspoon, Jake Gyllenhaal in Italy. Jennifer Aniston on her own would go for maybe $5,000. But Jennifer Aniston and John Mayer at a pool confirming their nascent coupledom would sell for $200,000. Six-figure sales were a little more rare. But, uh, you know, People Magazine, there were times where they spent $150,000 on a cover shot. And uh, it wasn't like a hot new couple or anything, but it was just the picture that they wanted, that they liked, and it just worked for them. The biggest paydays came to those who knew how to get the shot who knew where the celebrities would be and win, and how to play the game. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says, Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. 
Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Getting good tips on celebrities' whereabouts is the lifeblood of the paparazzi industry. And a lot of times, famous people who want to stay famous call in tips to the paparazzi. I'd say even 25% of my uh, work for the tabloids or in the paparazzi business were set up with celebrities. Sometimes the currency celebrities want is more clout. But sometimes the currency they want is, well, currency. Mainstream newspaper, magazine, or TV news reporters aren't supposed to pay for stories. But money flows more freely in the tabloid world, particularly around pictures. Randy Bauer remembered paying someone as much as $10,000 just for a good tip about Will Smith. Sometimes if the tip was really, really good, the agency would cut the person in on the profits of the photo sale, and the royalties on that could pour in for years and years. Celebrities like ones that rhyme with smarsmashians, sometimes benefit from this model. They'll tip the paps off, then take a cut of the photo sales. Sometimes those tips come from hairdressers, hangers-on, and family members. Here's Peter and Francine Brandt again, trying to remember the name of one of their most lucrative tipsters. For a long time, uh, Eric it was his name, and it was... Um, what's his brother... Francine, you here? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Eric, the guy from Telluride, his father's name, the actor, uh, married to the lady I wanted to photograph topless in Mexico, blah, blah, blah. It went on like that for a while. Michael Douglas's brother. <sighs> this is brain freeze, I'm sorry. So Eric was a great source for the National Choir for many years because his father, his, his brother never found out about it. All right. So th that's a good example where what Michael's doing, where he was, his lovers, everything. And I would go out on a lot of these assignments 
being tipped off like that. Eric Douglas passed away in 2004, and Michael Douglas's rep declined to comment. Sometimes celebs don't want to cut. They just have a message to get out. If you see a celebrity photo that looks shockingly set up, chances are it is. If you know what you're looking for, it can be pretty easy to spot. Know those photos of John Mulaney and Olivia Munn eating fast food just after they announced their fast-tracked relationship? Well, the photographer credited on the shots works for an agency called Star Tracks that's known for these kinds of friendly, coordinated photos. Randy says he and his partner Frank Griffin were once called by Julia Roberts' team back when she was dating, but not yet married to, Danny Motor. Motor's wife was apparently dragging her feet on the divorce. Did Bauer Griffin want to take some shots of Ms. Roberts, her team asked? Frank and myself, so we did go there and we shot it. And we said, oh, this is great, we put it out. This would have been around 2002, before Roberts decamped from Hollywood to the relative anonymity of New Mexico. Afterwards, we're looking at the picture and her shirt, she had writing on her shirt. So we were like, oh, what does it say? And it said, A. Low Vera. You know, like aloe vera, like the gel, aloe. But it wasn't spelled that way. It was, in fact, a very rinky dink looking, hand drawn shirt that said A L O W Vera. Danny Motor's wife's name was Vera. Roberts' reps did not respond to a request for comment. Around 2005, I got my first cell phone. So did a lot of people. We all had cameras on our person at all times. That's about when the gold rush era of paparazzi turned to the democratized era of paparazzi. Anyone could do it, not just a trained professional. That changed everything. Once, a 16-year-old girl took pictures of Taylor Swift and Jake Gyllenhaal getting coffee somewhere in Tennessee. Her mom took them to Bauer Griffin. Years later, the mom contacted us, email correspondent said, thank you so much for that experience. We didn't know what to do with the pictures. You guys were honest. Thank you. And my daughter paid for her college with that money that she made on those uh, Jake Gyllenhaal pictures. I said, that's great. I love that story. Big newsmaking shots still sold, but there was a beast to feed. The public's insatiable desire for more and more celebrity content. Blogs and websites were popping up everywhere. And the barriers to entry into the celebrity news industry were tumbling down. The democratization wasn't just about civilians taking paparazzi shots. It was about unskilled photographers making it their full-time profession. In 2005, Gary Morgan, the owner of Splash, one of the big photo agencies, told the New York Times that there were 150 paparazzi in Los Angeles, which was up from 80 the previous year. This guy you're about to hear in a French-language documentary, Francois Navarre, had a huge hand in the rising number of paparazzi on the streets of L.A. Navarre is French and looks, well, very stereotypically French. A white guy with floppy gray hair, nice clothes, and a nice car. He founded his paparazzi agency, X-17, back in the mid-1990s. 
Though he started off as a stakeout paparazzo, he gradually grew his business into one of the biggest ones in Hollywood by flouting some of the classic wildlife photography rules of traditional paparazzi. Navarre hired guys with no photography experience, in particular, Brazilian valet attendants. He gave them cameras and told them to shoot the celebrities right up close. Those on-the-street scrum photos you might associate with TMZ? They got their stuff in the early days mostly from X-17. And who did X-17 shoot the most? Hi, Brindy. How are you? How are you doing, Brindy? Brindy, you look great. How was yesterday? You got fun with the kids? You got fun with the kids? X-17 followed Britney Spears everywhere. So did lots of photographers. But in 2007, the Los Angeles Times called X-17 the Britney Spears specialist and noted that Francois Navarre had placed a seven-man team on her. There are countless video clips online from around 2006 to 2008 of the paparazzi following Britney around. A lot of them are shot with her in a car, getting out of a car, or in gas stations. It's a disconcerting homage to America's car culture, in addition to being disconcerting in a number of other ways. Adam, you're blocking your shot. Hey, hey, guys, put the gas in for her. If you watch enough of these, you can see Brittany trying to negotiate her relationship with this group of photographers who's just part of her life, for better or for worse. She talked to them, smiled for them, knew who they were, politely asked them to leave if she felt they'd gotten their shot. In 2007, things felt very different. Brittany's marriage had just ended. She had custody trouble with her kids, and her mental health struggle became more public. In February of that year, she shaved her head and attacked a paparazzi car with an umbrella. The photo sales of shots like the head shaving incident and ones where she wasn't wearing underwear while getting out of a car sold, according to Randy, well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. What's disheartening about watching a lot of these Britney clips, in addition to the basic fact of a person in distress, is how paparazzi often professed to be worried about her while taking the pictures that were making things worse for her. I think most probably felt bad for her on some level, but not bad enough to stop. They were making tons of money. It's a deflating commentary on the human condition, proof of our empathy for fellow man, and also the triumph of our absolute self-interest above all else. Britney started dating paparazzi photographer Adnan Ghalib in 2008 in a move that feels very uncomfortably like Stockholm Syndrome, like her world being reduced to people who were constantly hovering around her with cameras and flashes and shouts. Predictably, that relationship did not end well. There have been reports that photos like this have been profitable for Adnan. Did you sell those photos? No. Did Britney ever ask you not to sell photos of her? She never asked me, but I think it's a conflict of interest. I think she'd be upset if I did, and I haven't. They eventually broke up. If your stomach is turning a little bit at all this exploitation, perhaps it's a good time to talk about the ethics of paparazzi photography. The in-your-face picture-taking style that became popular in the mid-2000s could be genuinely dangerous. A paparazzi chasing an 18-year-old Lindsay Lohan crashed into her car in 2005 
And that same year, photographer Todd K. Wallace was charged with shoving and striking children and a mother at Disneyland while attempting to get photographs of Reese Witherspoon at her daughter's sixth birthday party. Wallace had previously followed Misha Barton into a store and harassed employees. He had a felony record and, in a ghoulish twist, was found dead in his apartment after failing to show up for his bail hearing. On the one hand, removing the need for technical photo skills in order to enter the paparazzi industry meant that people with no training or dubious backgrounds were now being hired into the industry. On the other hand, former gardeners or valets suddenly had a shot at making a huge payday. It was American dream kind of stuff, if you looked at it that way. Peter Grossman told me he thought paparazzi weren't respected because they're often working class and Latino. They're undervalued because they don't have college degrees. They're undervalued because a lot of them are not born in America. They're undervalued because they do work that people with college degrees that were born in America don't want to do but want to have done. And that doesn't make them any different from any other industry. And it's not okay. I take Peter's intellectual point. But I also know that the magazine he worked for was almost certainly okay with the guys on the street getting the lion's share of the blame from celebrities and the public for some of the worst behavior we saw. But magazines and their editors were inextricably linked to the dirty work happening on the street. They commissioned it and paid for it. Yet the distance they had from the actual flashbulbs allowed them to commiserate with an angry celebrity or publicist when necessary. The distance kept them in respectable journalist standing. The shit could roll down onto the working guys. And of course, magazines like Us Weekly and People that didn't pay sources for tips still benefited from the dubious professional ethics of the PAPs. They bought photos from paparazzi and agencies that paid for tips. The editors were just a step removed from that distasteful part of the industry. Peter Brandt told me that he struggled a lot over the years with the morality of what he was doing. In the beginning, I really felt guilty what I was doing, honestly, for a long time. I, I, I don't know how to put it. I still did it. it it's like a, a, a murderer says, I don't like to kill, but I kill. <laughs> Peter was actually rather famously sued for what a lot of people would call a massive ethical breach, taking topless photos of Jennifer Aniston in her backyard. This was in 2005, and after her divorce from Brad Pitt, Aniston was dating Vince Vaughn. There were no photos of the couple yet, so a magazine sent Peter and his van on assignment to stake out her house. He sat on the house for a couple days and took one set of pictures of the couple smoking something. I'm an old 60s hippie. So is she. <laughs> and um, so we, I, mean, I know what they're passing. He goes home, comes back the next day. Who comes out walking in a, in a lingerie is Jennifer at uh, 8 a.m. Walking out on her balcony, enjoying the sun. What happened next is Aniston took off her top in her backyard and Peter took a picture. He tried to sell it, and she sued Peter for invasion of privacy. It was actually the second time that a paparazzi had taken topless backyard photos of Aniston. An X-17 photographer had previously scaled a neighbor's fence and snapped photos of her. 
I asked Peter if he felt any of that guilt about taking those particular photos. You know, she's an actress, and she went outside in her backyard, fully aware that other people, uh, helicopters come by all the time. I used helicopters like 20% of my time during working, hoping to get somebody to come out of their yard doing something. And she knew coming out there topless was not the smartest thing to do. So, so I can only rationalize this in my own mind. If it was a nobody person, and I'm photographing them because they're topless, maybe they look beautiful topless, and I were to publish that, that's terrible. That person is not expecting anybody to take her picture topless and publish it because she has gorgeous breasts or something. But Jen, this is Jennifer Aniston. This is the, the number one actress in the world at that time. Should know better. You don't do that in public. It's a little funny to hear Peter, a gentle, nice guy in my experience, who made paparazzi photography his family business, articulate this hardline justification. His definition really strains the normal definition of privacy. But to Peter, celebrities, some of whom he was friends with, aren't simply fellow human beings. I mean, they are, but they're also people who have made themselves into consumable products. I actually think most of us think of celebrities in that dual way. It's just that Peter, unlike most people, was forced to a decision point about how to primarily view them. I was the breadwinner, so whatever I was doing, it was to feed my family. So, the, so you had the guilt, but I was doing feed my family. Bottom, bottom line. People in celebrity media will often point out that while the public says they don't like the way paparazzi photos are taken, they're more than happy to click on the finished product or buy it off a newsstand. In 2008, Portfolio reported that a magazine with a Britney Spears cover sold 33% more than the average cover. During the period from January 2006 to July of 2007, newsstand sales of Britney cover issues came to $360 million. The argument that editors and paparazzi photo agencies could make was that the public wanted to see Britney flounder. And they did, the sales show. At least for a time. Numbers compiled by Forbes for the first half of 2007, a period in which Britney shaved her head and went to rehab, reveal a wrinkle in the tabloid justification. She was on 18 magazine covers during that six-month period, which made her the most popular cover subject. But those Britney covers sold 600,000 issues below average. Readers were not into breathless coverage of her rapid descent. I'm loath to absolve us, the public, too quickly, though. This wasn't necessarily a repulsion at the way Spears was being treated or some mass boycott of celebrity magazines. I feel like I've seen enough of human nature to guess that it might have just been plain old boredom with her storyline. People bought the magazines for a little scandal, a little escapism. Britney's problems, so closely captured by the paps, were way too close to the problems and sadness we might encounter in our own lives. Here's Mara Reinstein, the Us Weekly writer. Us reporting it, we really didn't give a point of view of, OMG, let's gawk at her and, and be snarky. It really wasn't. It, it, and I think that it's very easy to say that 
it's very easy to play armchair critic 15 years after the fact. But as someone who was there at the time, there were a lot of emotions. It didn't sit well with any of us, none of us at the time, but we reported on it just like every other mainstream outlet. I'm not sure I agree they don't give a point of view. Here's a sampling of a few 2007 Us Weekly Britney Spears covers. There's Hollywood's Drug Problem, a close-up of her two boys, and the lines, Soda and Baby Bottles, Mommy's Many Men. My Twisted Night with Brit, and Brit's Nannies Tell All. The point of view seems clear. Britney is sleeping around and a bad mom. I think the armchair critics Mara is referring to is the Free Britney movement, which started as a worried grassroots fandom a couple years ago that called out people they thought hadn't been sympathetic enough to Spears in the past. It also morphed into a powerful force moving public opinion. The Free Britney activists seem to play a pivotal role in helping pressure those involved in the Spears conservatorship to relinquish control. And it wasn't just the celebrity magazines that were covering Britney's decline. CNN was. CBS was. Everyone was. For many of us who are fans of the tabloids, there's something genuinely disconcerting about trying to reconcile desire for escapism, gossip, and gleeful schadenfreude with the idea that celebrities are real human beings with feelings. We'll probably never meet them. They are probably wildly wealthier and more beautiful than we are. How could what we're doing possibly hurt them. A lot of the tabloid journalists I've talked to for this series express a lot of regret specifically around Britney Spears. And I'm pretty sure a few people didn't want to talk on tape for the show because of the re-examination climate fostered by her conservatorship battle. By the way, it wasn't like people didn't have consciences back in 2007. Here's Craig Ferguson on The Late Late Show that year, talking about how he was sort of queasy about making jokes about the disintegrating lives of some tabloid stars. That Anna Nicole Smith woman, she died. <laughs> no, it's not a joke, you know. It's, it stops being funny that, that she's got a six-week-old kid or six-month-old kid. What the, hell the fact that? that this audience laughs right then says a lot about that moment in our culture. I think my aim's been off a bit recently. I, I, I want to change it a bit. So tonight, no Britney Spears jokes, and here's why. Here's exactly why. Britney Spears. No, no, no. Wait. I'm not doing that. Britney, listen, when she, the kind of weekend she had, she was checking in out of rehab, she was shaving her head, getting tattoos. That's what she was doing this weekend. This Sunday, I was 15 years sober. So I looked at her weekend, and I looked at my own weekend, and I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'd rather have my weekend. But what she's going through reminds me of what I was doing. It's an anniversary. You start to think about it. It reminds me of where I was 15 years ago when I was living like that. Now, I'm not... I think Craig Ferguson was howling into the void a little at that time. But his sentiment is admirable. This woman has two kids. She's 25 years old. She's a baby herself. She's a baby. He's talking about empathy. And basically, the paparazzi business I've spent the past episode describing doesn't include a lot of space for that. It's actually an important journalistic skill, though, seeking to understand your fellow man. But empathy can often feel at odds with the job of a reporter 
tabloid or otherwise, to hold truth to power or make the powerful a little uncomfortable. Famous people are powerful. They're often selling us something. Hollywood is a $42 billion a year industry. The music industry has revenues in the $12 billion range. But famous people are also just people. Here's Jennifer Garner testifying before the California State Assembly in 2013. I don't want a gang of shouting, arguing, law-breaking photographers who camp out everywhere we are, all day, every day, to continue traumatizing my kids. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. (laughs) Sorry. It's about balance in the end, I think. Yes, fame is a weird, Faustian bargain to a certain degree. You give a little bit of yourself away for immortality and riches. In the old story, Dr. Faustus sells his soul to the devil for power and pleasure. That makes us, the celebrity-consuming public, the devil in this particular scenario. Which is, I think we'd all admit, less than ideal. Next time on Just Like Us. You've got wise Brad said goodbye on this picture, this beautiful, like, literally walking into the sunset. And she's good. Sad Jen on his shoulder. Along comes the raven-haired, buxom, tattooed, wild girl to blow up this love affair for the ages. It classically tapped into all these fears of that trope of what does my husband do when he goes to work with that hot colleague? So he took a rock and she hit herself over the head to give her me. These were not instructions from the news desk, by the way. And she checked herself into the hospital and was in the room next to Angelina Jolie giving birth to Shiloh. Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone, with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hans Dale Shee. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.